Let us pray for open and receptive hearts for the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Rest on us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Through Jesus our Lord, amen. A reading taken from John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 24 to 27, the Gospel of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Jackie. It had been a year and a half since they had heard from their son. He was a pastor in Chicago. He had a kid who was really a great kid all the way up through high school till about when he was 19 years old, he began to distance himself from his mom and his dad and his siblings. Uh, for, he, he, first, he, he wouldn't come home for birthdays, and then he wouldn't even come home for holidays or even for big celebrations. He just plunged into the dark side, sex, drug culture, you name it, he was gone. And for a year and a half, they had no contact with their boy. And then one Saturday night, it was really Sunday morning, 2 a.m., the police called to say that their son had been brought into custody, driving under the influence, and they said, we've got your son, and if you want to come get him out of jail, you can do that. And so this pastor, early on a Sunday morning, goes down to the local police station in this small township in suburban Chicago, and they told him, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't have that boy here. So he goes one township over and hears the same thing. We don't know what you're talking about. In Chicago, you know, one township's connected to another, and so he tried the next one. And at, at that point, it's 4 o'clock in the morning, and he's a pastor, and it's Sunday morning, and he doesn't know if his son is completely lost. He doesn't know where he is. He was at a loss. How do you change your son when your boy doesn't want to change? How do you get him out of trouble when he doesn't seem to want out of the trouble himself? You know, some Christians would say you just have to lay down the law, bump up the consequences, kick him out of the house, he's already gone. To many in the early Christian communities, the answer was to shun those who would not comply, reject them, distance them, avoid them, exclude them. How does that work here? Does that work ever? Faith perhaps begins with the gospel, we think, but it must continue through application of principles. What principles can help a 19-year-old addict who doesn't know that his life is a wreck and he doesn't want to change? Friends, we're going to look at a passage in Paul's letter to Galatians. It's Galatians 2, verses 11 to 16, where we learn about the power of God to change a life. It's Galatians 2, beginning in verse 11. You can follow along. When Peter came to Antioch, Paul writes, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back 
and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing God's law, no one will be justified. So what do we see here? We see a warning that shunning believers because of their background is out of line with the gospel. We talked some about that last week, and this week I want to examine some of the psychology of how that works, some of the motivational goings-on that drive how we can live our life together as the family of God. So what do we see here? First thing, Paul is giving us a radically different way of thinking about the Christian life. He, he calls out Peter's complicity. He gets there and he sees that, that everybody is shunning the Gentile Christians. They won't sit at the same table with them in violation of everything they had agreed and discussed previously in this passage in the description of these accounts. And so Peter calls him, Peter gets called out. Paul calls him out for his complicity in this shunning behavior. And yet he doesn't tell him, Peter, what you're doing is not in line with God's law. He could say that. That would be accurate. But he doesn't say that because that's not the issue. He says, Peter, what you're doing is not in line with God's gospel. It's a radically different way of thinking about the Christian life. In the Christian life, we never get beyond the gospel to something more important or more advanced. The gospel is not that minimum content necessary to enter the kingdom of Jesus. It's the, the gospel is the way we make every single step of progress in the Christian life. The way Tim Keller says it, he says it this way. He says, we are not justified by the gospel and then sanctified, that is grow, by obedience. Rather, the gospel is the way we grow, Galatians 3, and are renewed, Colossians 1. The gospel is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power to take us through every barrier in Romans 1. The gospel, he says, it's very common in the church to think as follows. The gospel is for non-Christians. One needs it to be saved. Once saved, however, you grow through hard work and obedience. And he says, this is a mistake. Both confession and hard work that is not arising from and in line with the gospel will not sanctify you. They will strangle you. All our problems come from a failure to apply the gospel. Thus, when Paul left the Ephesians, he committed them to the word of his grace, which can build you up. Paul is giving us something radically different. He's saying that the Christian life is less about figuring out and applying the biblical principles. That will turn you into an unmitigated legalist, and it's done it for a whole lot of us who are still in the process of recovering from that. 
Rather, the way the Christian life works is you, you are brought to Christ through the gospel, and then each step of obedience, each step of confession is in fact going back to the gospel, believing the gospel, believing everything God says about me as a sinner, believing everything he says about, about his love and care for me, and learning to trust that, to trust him in his good news every step of the way. He's giving us a radically different way of thinking about the Christian life, that we grow by getting our lives in line with the gospel. Specifically here, we see the gospel changes how we navigate differences and sins in our relationships with other people. Tim Keller says that there are two ways the gospel changes things in this account. Uh, He notes that the gospel keeps us on the one hand from being persecutors, and on the second hand, the gospel turns us into confronters. First, the gospel keeps us from being persecutors. That's what these Judaizers, these religious teachers, had become. Uh, They saw the Gentiles. The Gentiles were of a different race. The Gentiles were of a different ethnicity. The Gentiles had a different religious background. The Gentiles had not converted to Judaism in becoming Christians. They were not yet circumcised. They came from a different culture. They likely had a checkered past. Gentiles were known for all sorts of sins, sexual sins, idolatrous worship practices, unclean ways of eating and living their life. And now these preachers have come and they're saying that Gentile Christians, they're not clean. You can't be clean unless you get circumcised and follow the Jewish food laws and Jewish culture. And you look what happens. You know what it's like when someone has a cloud above them, when someone gets denounced, when people think, well, I don't necessarily dislike that person, but, you know, I don't want to be associated with them. I don't want their bad reputation passing on to me. I don't want to oppose these religious leaders who have come with all this religious power and influence. I don't want to pay the cost of actually associating with these Gentile sinners. And and so what happens? Paul explains it in verse 12. He says, before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to what? He began to to draw back. Did you hear that? He began to draw back from them. He began to shun them. He began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. And why, the text says, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. He was cowering before these legalists. He was, he was afraid of these bullies and the influence and power and the cost that he would have to pay if he were to stand up to them and say, what you're doing in shunning the Gentiles is wrong. These religious leaders were persecuting their brothers and sisters in Christ in order to force them to comply with their own laws and regulations. And Peter joined in because he was afraid He had understood the gospel before. He used to sit with these folks in the cafeteria, but not anymore. What had happened? They brought intense social pressure. And you can imagine these Gentiles, how abandoned they would have felt as the new believers in this church, how isolated they would have felt. Some of you, have you ever been shunned? Do you know what that feels like? Have you ever had your friends pull away from you? Have you ever been made to feel like a pariah? Have you ever realized that you're alone now? Do you know what abandonment feels like? These Gentile converts to Jesus would have felt so shunned and so ashamed and so isolated because their background was different. A friend of mine shared a story once 
from middle school, sixth grade church camp. He was a little different from all the other kids. And so when it came to be bedtime, there were two rooms filled with bunk beds for all the boys to sleep in. And he went to his bunk and he put his stuff down and he got in bed and then all the other boys went to the other room. And then one by one, after those beds filled up, kids would come in to his room and, and ask, oh, is this bunk next to yours taken? No, take it, it's yours. And they'd grab the mattress and the pillow and take it into the other room. And they were sleeping on the floor because no one wanted to be in the same room with my friend. Can you imagine being 11 years old and being completely alone, crying yourself to sleep at night because... This is what church camp is like. This is what the family of God is like. It's shunning. You can imagine sitting alone in a school cafeteria. There are two big long tables and everyone but you sits at the other table and you're left alone and someone walks up to you and asks if, if anybody's sitting next to you and you say, no, have a seat. And they take the chair and pull it over to the other table. And then another person comes and asks, is this seat taken? No. And they then take the chair and move it over to the other table where the bullies are seated and they're all pointing at you and they're all looking at you and they're all talking about you. And everyone is now two and three deep around one table while you're completely alone at your own table. And so you try to pretend that you're looking at your phone. You try to pretend that your guts aren't wrenching inside. You try to pretend that it's not all about you. You try to hold back the tears, to not let them see the shame that is overwhelming you at that moment. But you know why they're avoiding you. You think you've figured it out. It's because you're defective, because you're not like the rest of them. You're the Gentile. You're not clean like everyone else. You're not pure like everyone else. And the teachers are saying things about you. The bullies are talking and no one loves you. No one wants to be associated with you. No one wants your stink clinging to them. And so you're alone. And then in walks the class president and he sees what's happening. His name is Peter and he used to be your friend. But now he averts his gaze and he tries not to make contact with you as he too pulls a chair from your table and drags it over to the other one. And it continues and the feeling of despair is unbearable. If you've been there, you understand what these Gentile believers in these churches were feeling as they had become the pariah because they were not Jewish. That's what happens without the gospel. Without the gospel, we become persecutors. The church had already ruled on these matters and said the Gentiles were good. The Gentiles are in. But then these teachers come and rob them of the gospel. And everybody became a persecutor and they couldn't stop because psychologically we need to validate ourselves. We need to justify our existence. We need to prove ourselves to others uh, and, and, and to ourselves, that we measure up, that we're good people, not the bad people. And to accomplish that, to get in that category of the good people, you have to, by definition, have a second category of the bad people. And that makes you a persecutor because you are seeing yourself superior to them and you are purchasing your justification, the justification of your existence at their expense. It's what we talked about last week. You have to compare yourself favorably with someone. And it turns you into a persecutor. Without the gospel, you construct your identity at their expense. I, I see it all the time. Internally, I know, I feel a need to justify myself. And when I'm not believing the gospel, I'm doing this specifically with those bad people who don't believe the gospel. See how subtle it can be? I can be self-righteous about my belief in the gospel. It's, it's, 
It's insidious. It's hard to get away from. Without the gospel, it happens to us. I'm guilty as charged. But what the gospel can do is it can provide a way out because the gospel says, I am one of the bad people. And that takes me away from my need to persecute because I'm in the wrong category. The gospel tells me that the main problem with the world today is that it has people like me in it. And that God loves people like me. It knocks me off my pedestal and makes me way less motivated to burn heretics wherever I see them. I'm less likely to do theology on the attack. I'm less focused in my judging of my brothers because I'm too focused on the log in my own eye and not the speck I see in theirs. We've got a picture. Can we get that slide? We just got one slide. This is St. Moses. Um, uh, St. Moses the Ethiopian in the 300s, he said it this way. He said, they who are conscious of their own sins have no eyes for the sins of their neighbors. It's Christian humility. It's at the root of Christian love because it flows from that gospel experience, always going back to the gospel that I am far more sinful than I realize. I'm one of the bad people. And God loves bad people. And he washes bad people. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners. And that takes away my prideful need to justify my own existence because I've got a better justification in Jesus. The gospel stops us from being persecutors. Uh, It's one of the most identifiable signs that you're actually getting the gospel and growing in Jesus is that you quit looking down on other people. You quit categorizing them as good or bad. You quit persecuting people. It stops us from being a persecutor, but it also makes us confronters. Look what the gospel did for St. Paul. Sam talked about this a few weeks ago. It was amazing. He walked right into this mess in Antioch and he confronted everybody. He confronted the Judaizers. He confronted sweet little Barnabas who got sucked in it too. He even confronted Peter to his face, he says. And Peter was the spokesperson of the apostles. And then Paul walks in. He's been on mission on the mission field going over the basics of the gospel. Gospel, gospel, gospel. From town to town, the first things of Christianity, proclaiming that Jesus has rescued us and all the intimidation of these religious leaders with their pressure and their denunciations and their threats and their bullying, it does not faze St. Paul. He thinks, Jesus Christ rescued me from condemnation, appeared to me in glory and power, and told me to include the Gentiles. Who the heck are you? Confrontation. Sure, it might split the church. But results are God's responsibility. Faithfulness to live in line with the gospel is our job. For some of us, this is really difficult. But the gospel enabled Paul to confront. The gospel is a non-negotiable. This is a gospel issue. For some of us, this is easier. My personality finds it pretty easy to to denounce you as a heretic any time, any day. Sure, I can do that. I'm going to have to figure out how to do that in love. Because that's where I am weak and where I have to grow. Some of you have the other thing. You're, you're good on love, but boy, telling the truth, calling a spade a spade is not easy for some of us, particularly for those of us who seem hardwired for caregiving. Confrontation can be very challenging. And, and yet, um, notice how even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, had failed. He points that out because Barnabas was such an encourager. He was the very kind of guy who would expect to come alongside the Gentiles because he had done that same thing for Paul earlier. He had opened the doors, yet sweet, gentle Barnabas, the caregiver, couldn't find the courage to confront when Gentile believers were being excluded and shunned for being different. Go back to the, the school cafeteria. 
and you're sitting alone at your table while 60 other students are crowded around two and three deep around the other table with the bullies and they're looking at you and they're whispering to one another and you know you're being excluded and you're trying to hide it but the shame is overwhelming and then the swing the doors swing open and the school's star quarterback walks in his name is Paul and he looks at you and he looks over at the other table and he looks back at you and he sets his tray down next to yours And he sets his bag down next to yours. And he says, hey, is it all right if I sit with you today? And you you can see a tear in his eye. And you're not sure if it's compassion or if it's rage. And he says, hey, um, I'll be right back. Just give me a second. Then he walks over to the other table. And he says something to the class president. He says, we need to talk now. And he and the class president, that's Peter, walk outside and you can't hear what's being said but it's really loud and it's really heated and you can tell that Paul is the one doing all of the talking and it doesn't last long maybe 60 seconds they both walk in they're all smiles and they both walk in and 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 Peter gets his tray and brings it over to your table and then it's the three of you seated together and then something strange starts to happen because then all of the girls who have a crush on the quarterback and on this class president then get up and they move over to your table because you have just become the center of a new community and then you notice that 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 all of the jocks and all of the cool kids are moving over because they're interested in the girls who are interested in the class president and the quarterback and then the nerdy kid with the pocket protector and the, the masking tape holding his glasses together in the middle he gets up and he walks over to one of the bullies and he says hey is anybody seated here he says no you can sit there and he grabs the chair and he moves it over to your table and sits with you two and three deep and what's just happened is then suddenly all of the bullies have now been isolated and the Gentiles have been brought in. That, friends, is what Paul is talking about. That's the power of the gospel. That's what Galatians is about. Because when the star quarterback walked into that cafeteria, he was the only one believing the gospel. And his job was to get his life in line with the gospel, then help the other Christians get their lives in line with the gospel. Because the gospel says that a God who was our enemy crossed every single barrier in order to rescue people who were not at all like him because he loved them so that they could go and do likewise. That's the Christian church, and it's built on the gospel. The gospel keeps us from being persecutors, but it also transforms us into confronters. How is that possible? Where do you get the strength to be the whistleblower, to raise the red flag, to call the foul, to be the person who's, to, to, who's, who's looking out for those who are overlooked, to advocate when someone else is being mistreated and the whole culture of the place tells you not to do anything, not to say anything, to ignore it and pretend it's going to go away. If you're not wired for that, what, what does that? What enables that? Paul tells us in the 16th verse, he says something he knows that makes it possible. There's something lodged deep in the center of his soul, something that has set him free to be the whistleblower. He says it in verse 16. He says, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one's going to be justified. He's saying, I don't need to be justified in the eyes of the bullies. I don't need to be justified justified in the eyes of all the people over at this other table. I am justified in the eyes of God. And he is pleased with me. He is approving of me. He is delighting with me. And he is saying, live in line with my gospel. It's the power to change a life. 
when you know you don't need anyone else's approval, when everything is forgiven. You know, Jesus says in John 5, what, what Jackie read, that, that anyone who believes in him is crossed over from death to life and will not be condemned. When you know you have God's favor, it can free you to take risks of losing favor with other people. It's alien righteousness. You know, justification. It, it doesn't mean just as if you never sin. That's only half of it. It's that your sin has gone to Jesus and he's been crucified in your place and you will never have to pay that debt again because there is no double jeopardy in the kingdom of heaven. Paid in full, done. But that's only half of justification. The other half, friends, is that the righteousness of God, the righteousness of Jesus has been transferred from Christ's account to your account and you are now therefore worthy in the eyes of God of having your prayers answered, worthy in the eyes of God of being forgiven given when you fail, worthy in the eyes of God of every honor in high places, of every spiritual blessing. You have just won the Nobel Peace Prize. You have won the Presidential Medal of Honor and been given access into the hallways of power. That is what it means to be justified by God, not on account of what you do in your law obedience, but on account of what Jesus did. This is what Paul talks about when he camps out on what he calls the truth of the gospel the incredible freedom to confront. Until the gospel sinks in, you can't do it because it's more than forgiveness. Forgiveness says you can go now, but righteousness says you can come now into my presence because it's not, in this case, about the strength of your faith. It's about the direction of your faith. Paul doesn't talk about you're justified through a strong faith. He doesn't say you're justified through a powerful faith, through a consistent faith, through an undoubting faith, through a, 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 a steady faith. He says you are justified. You're right with God through faith in Jesus. He says nothing at all about the quality of your faith. It doesn't matter if it's big or strong. Jesus said if you have faith as much as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Because what matters is not the type of faith, the strength of faith, the power of your faith, the consistency of your faith, the confidence of your faith. What matters is the direction of your faith. Who is your faith in? And if your faith is in Jesus, he says, you are justified before the God of heaven. Uh, it's like a story I tell often about the two rock climbers. You've heard it before probably. Two rock climbers climb up this huge cliff face and they get to the top. There's only one way up, only one way down. They get to the top and then they see out in the distance a black cloud with lightning heading their way and they know they got to get down fast and say, all right, let's get back down. And one of them starts to go this way and one starts to go that way and they're like, whoa, hold it. We got to figure out which way. Well, it's this way. I know it's this way. Yeah, it might be that way, but I'm thinking we came up this way. I think it's this path, but I could totally be wrong. I'm, I'm, I, I feel like this is probably the right way, but, but you could totally be, be right. No, it's this one. I know it's this one. I am an expert rock climber. I climb mountains for a living. This is what I do in my, in my spare time, and, and I actually train other people to do this. And this is the way we came. This is the right path. And so finally, they just decide they're going to take their different paths, and this you know, rock climber goes down this way, and this rock climber goes down this way, and this one falls to his death 4,000 feet, dies at the bottom of a valley, and this one gets down safely. And the question you have to answer is this, which rock climber had the stronger faith? This guy. His faith was certain, but it was in the wrong rock. This guy, his faith was weak and doubting and filled with conflict and uncertainty, but his choice, his faith, Weak though it was, wobbly though it was, was in the right rock. Friends, doesn't matter the strength of your faith so much as the direction of your faith. It is faith 
in Jesus that saves. That's the good news. That's the power to actually change people. That's the power to actually transform. If you go back to that phone call in Chicago, and this dad, he's gotten the call, he's gone to one police department, then another, and then another, and it's 4 o'clock in the morning. He's wide awake anyway, even though he's a pastor, and it's Sunday morning, he goes to the last place where he had ever known that his son was hanging out. And he gets there, deep in Chicago, it's a drug house. At 5 o'clock in the morning, the door is wide open on its hinge. People are lying around on the floor as he goes through. There are mattresses everywhere. People are in various states of unconsciousness. Some of them are asleep. Some of them have passed out. There's drug paraphernalia and trash littering the place everywhere. Needles on the floor, blood in places, pills and bottles and vials. And he tries to see if his son is somewhere in the building. It's a crack house. And he locates his son in the very back room, lying on a mattress at 5 o'clock in this hellhole. And his heart just breaks for his son. And he gets down on his knees and he kisses his son. And he gets up and he goes home to prepare his sermon. At that point, about three months later, his son showed up at the family home unexpected. It had been almost two years at that point. A few weeks later, he dropped by again. A couple weeks later, he dropped by one more time. Pretty soon, his son is, is there all the time, and in no time, the son has been integrated back into the family. They never asked anything, but after months, his dad finally sits down with his son, and he says, Son, what the heck happened? How did you go so deep, and, and, and what happened to draw you out of that whole life? He said, Dad, don't you know? I haven't a clue. He said, Dad, it was that night. What night? You know, that night when you got that phone call, that was one of my friends playing a, a prank on you, Dad. And we were all laughing at the thought that you were looking to meet me and find me at a police station at 4 o'clock in the morning. The one thing we never imagined, Dad, is that you would come to that house in Chicago. It's the one thing we never imagined. And, Dad, we saw you coming down the street, and we all dove for the mattresses. Dad, I wasn't asleep that night you came to the house. When you walked into that house and found me, Dad, I knew you were going to be so furious at me, I knew you would be ready to kick me as hard as you could. You want to know what changed me, Dad? You kissed me. The Bible says that's the only thing that has the power to change us, the kiss of God, the kiss of God. Only the gospel can bring our lives in line with the gospel. Friends, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for the gospel. It's the power of God to save sinners like us. I thank you, Lord, that you gave your son Jesus. You gave him up for us that we might have life. I thank you, Father, and we consecrate to you now the elements on this table that you might preach good news to us who are poor. We pray it through Christ our Lord. Amen.